I'm Brittany Bathia, your host of The Heart of the Matter, where we highlight best practices in the field and help set direction for the future. Heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular diseases account for one in every three deaths in the United States. Cardiovascular disease is the nation's leading cause of death among both men and women, as well as the leading cause of health disparities. Today, we're excited to have both Dr. Letitia Presley Cantrell and Dr. Carol Watson for a dynamic discussion around cardiovascular disease prevention among African-American women. Dr. Carol Watson is an attending cardiologist and a professor of medicine and cardiology at the David Heffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She's the director of the UCLA Women's Cardiovascular Health Center and co-director of the UCLA Program in Preventive Cardiology. She's also a board member of the American Heart Association and chairperson of the Scientific Advisory Board for Women's Heart, the largest national organization for women survivors of heart disease. As the branch chief of the Program Development and Services Branch in the Division of Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention at the CDC, Dr. Presley Cantrell provides leadership and strategic engagement with stakeholders at the local, state, and federal levels in the development, implementation, and promotion of community-based public health programs, as well as research aimed at reducing the rates of cardiovascular disease in underserved and priority populations. Dr. Presley Cantrell currently co-chairs the Health Equity Task Force for the National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. As a nationally recognized leader, she provides expertise on racial disparities, social determinants of health, and health equity. Good morning. I am here with Dr. Carol Watson, and today we're going to have a discussion about cardiovascular health disparities among African-American women. Dr. Watson, first of all, good morning, and thank you for joining this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak to you, my friend and to talk about something so important. Right, something that we're both very passionate about. So for today, we're just gonna have a informal discussion around what we see from both perspectives, mine from the public health side of what we see around cardiovascular health disparities in African-American and yours, of course, from the healthcare as a clinician and treating these women that are having cardiovascular health issues that you see every day. So I think I just want to start off by opening it up for us to kind of say what we see day to day and why this is such an important issue. So I'm going to go ahead and let you first talk about what you see in your day to day practice and what you see in the lived experiences of this women and why it's so important that we talk about these issues. Absolutely. So what I see day to day are women who are interested in their health, women are really in tune to their health. They want to do the right thing. They want to do what's the healthy thing, but aren't always told exactly how to do that or help to do that. So I see many women who are interested in just learning about the healthiest things to do, the healthy way to live, the medications they may need. But I also see a lot of women who, before they've met me, haven't had someone look at them and say, you are at risk for heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death for these reasons. Here's what we can do to lower your risk. So again, many women have not had that conversation yet. And that is one of the most important conversations you can have. And I promise you, 
Women, we're role followers. We like to do the right thing. So if you give women that information, they will try to make it work. What I also see though, is sometimes a system that doesn't let them do the right thing. So I can make all the recommendations in the world for them to eat five servings of fruit and vegetable a day, but if they don't have a neighborhood grocery store that serves fresh fruit and vegetables or fruit and vegetable at a reasonable price that they can afford, that's not going to work. If I ask them to get 30 minutes of walking a day, but there's no safe space in their neighborhood, that's not going to work. If I ask them to do that while they're working three jobs all day, all night, and on the weekends, that's not going to work. So what I see are people and women who are hungry for the information, who want to do the right thing, but a lot of times external situations don't allow them to. And that's a great segue into what I am seeing and working with every day in public health. So as a segue into that, the things that you mentioned around giving them that important information and helping them to lead healthier lives are part of what we have to do in public health to help you in terms of the healthcare system. And so it is important that we continue to deliver messages to all women, but particularly African-American women who have some of the highest rates of disease in this particular area, that it is important for you to live a healthy life, but how do we help work with the systems that are in place that should enable and allow you to do that? And what we know from just looking at these systems is that there are huge disparities and inequities across systems of care, not only in everyone's community, but that is just pervasive on a national level. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to mitigate some of the factors that don't allow these women to live their best, healthiest lives. And so for public health, we've got to be in two or three different areas at the same time. What public health allows is for persons that are not normally at the table together to sit at the table, to talk through what we are seeing in some of the systems that you just spoke about. And so some of these systems that have access to the care and other lifestyle issues that we don't own levers to, we have to invite them to the table to help us to improve the lives of the women that we're discussing. Now, I would like to kind of segue into something that I think is important that we also talk about is that these women are really motivated to live healthy lives. There's the myths about these women that they don't really care about their health or it's not as important. And that is far from the case. But what we have to recognize is that there are other systems that are in place. And one of the theories that I like the best is the superwoman schema. And I'm not sure if some of our listeners have heard about that, but it really speaks to African-American women. And it talks about how African-American women actually conceptualize this stress 
over time around the lives and the lived experiences that they have and how that contributes or is related to these poor health outcomes. So we also have to, in public health and as well as in your clinical world every day, think about the lived experiences of these women and what is happening in society that causes this extra stress that prevents them from actually being able to take that responsible leadership role that they should be able to have in terms of directing their own health and health care. And I see that so often. I couldn't agree more with you. When we think about so many of the traumas and so much of the inequities and the injustices that many people in different communities have faced, they will react and respond in whatever way they can to survive. For instance, the African-American community really bonds together over food. And many of the things we like to eat are not necessarily healthful, but they are some of the things that we've grown up with that we could always afford that have brought us together. And so when you go to a doctor and they say, oh, you can't eat X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z are the things that your community uses as the Sunday post-church brunch or lunch or something, that is not going to work. So what we need to do is figure out how to make it work for you. My job is to make sure you are healthy enough to live the life you want to live. It's not my job to tell you what life to live. I can help you make healthier choices, but I need to get you to where you want to be. I think as a follow-up to that, one of the things that we often don't speak about is the lived experience and the generational perspective of women, and particularly women of color, African-American women. And you just alluded to that in your comments of how over time, we've generationally grown to adapt to things. And I will say most of the studies that you and I have talked about and most of the research that we see in the findings do speak to the resilience of a group of women who have over time had to come through and been subject to a lot of discrimination and other injustices, but have had to really persevere in order to get to where they are now. But those do, as you say, take a toll and that lived experience becomes something that we have to incorporate not only into my work in public health, but into what you are seeing in terms of clinical practice. And one of the things that we often don't think about is that generational perspective and what things that we've learned over time that contribute what we see today in the healthcare practices and other lifestyle and cultural practices that we see and how it is so important for us to understand those existential behaviors that people come into our worlds with. And again, as you said, not to negate them, but to figure out how to incorporate those into one's daily lives so we get the benefit of both. And even further, Carol, one of the things that I love to hear you talk about is this life perspective for women around health, not only cardiovascular health, but one of the things that we particularly don't talk about in women is how women go from young girls into adolescence, into young womanhood, into her reproductive 
years for those that want to exercise that option and then into menopause and then what that looks like in terms of cardiovascular health we generally kind of lump all of this into one thing it's kind of you're born a girl and you kind of show up and here you are with cardiovascular disease and we don't really think about that lifespan of women so if you could talk for a moment i've Again, like I said, I've heard you speak about this many times and I'm, I fall in love with it every time you talk about what that particular woman's lifespan looks like and how that factors into cardiovascular disease. Yeah, definitely. So let's take a little trip through a woman's life journey. So you're born, you're a beautiful, wonderful infant, you're cute and cuddly and everything looks great. From a cardiovascular standpoint, Everything is great. You have these pristine, wide open arteries. Nothing is wrong. Then you undergo puberty. So many things are different for women than for men, as you just alluded to, Letitia. One of them are reproductive hormones. For men, you're born with very little testosterone. You undergo puberty. Testosterone shoots up and it stays up most of your life except for a slight slow decline as you get older. For women, we are born virtually with no, you know, reproductive hormones and then puberty, everything goes haywire and shoots up. And then monthly, we have these cycling hormones and then we go through menopause and boom, things shut off all at once. So the reproductive hormone transition times are actually high risk times for the cardiovascular system. Let's talk about puberty. What happens to everyone during puberty is everyone gets taller, both boys and girls. Boys tend to get taller and thinner. Girls tend to get taller and heavier. And along with that heaviness, a lot of the cardiovascular risk factors start to get out of whack. We see blood pressures go up. We see glucose go up. We see your cholesterol go up, things that you never think about as a kid, they can start to get out of whack. And if we're not paying close attention and the healthcare providers are not, that can get out of control. It's really important to make sure you control them early because it's so much easier to control risk factors young than to try to bring them back in once you're older. Okay, so that's puberty. But then you get through puberty and you reach those reproductive years. And just as you said, Letitia, if you choose to have children, which many women do, those reproductive years mean your hormones are going to go even more cyclical, more wacky and everything. And what we know is that pregnancy is sort of a stress test for a woman's heart. You are making a new human being you are supporting an entire new circulation, an entire new person growing. And so your own cardiovascular system has to be up for those challenges. What we also know is that nature is hardwired to prioritize the fetus over the mother. So if there are limited resources, the fetus will get theirs over the mother. And so things like insulin resistance is kind of built into pregnancy. So they want to make sure that whatever sugars around goes to that fetus. And that may mean sometimes the mother gets more insulin resistant in order to make sure that happens. What then can happen is that mother might develop gestational diabetes. It doesn't mean that 
boom, that pregnancy gave you diabetes, it means that you were vulnerable and you had some underlying risk for that already. And then the pregnancy just manifested it. So we used to think, okay, the treatment for gestational diabetes is just to hurry and get the baby delivered in as healthy a way as possible. And once that baby is delivered, the gestational diabetes goes away and the woman never has to worry about it again. But what we now know is that once that woman has had gestational diabetes, she is at greater cardiovascular risk for the rest of her life. She's at a much higher risk of developing full-blown type 2 diabetes in the future. She's at risk of developing earlier heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular death. The same is true with pregnancy-associated hypertension. Again, we used to think, well, as soon as that baby's delivered, the hypertension will go away and the mother will be fine. But we now know that if that expresses itself during pregnancy, there's a much higher risk that you will develop chronic hypertension later in life, it'll develop earlier, and you will be at risk for heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. So we understand now that pregnancy is a window, it's a peak into a woman's future cardiovascular health. We need to pay attention. So if anyone has had any adverse pregnancy outcome, we need to follow that woman closely for the rest of their life. And we can make sure they stay healthy we just have to pay attention. And then, as you mentioned, we go through our reproductive years and reach the menopausal years. And it's actually perimenopause, the three to five years before the final period, that is the really roughest time for the cardiovascular system. So when you look at cardiovascular risk factors and what trajectory they take in someone as they transition from being premenopausal to postmenopausal, You'll see about six to 12 months before your final period, the blood pressure starts going up. About six months before the final period, your LDL or the lousy cholesterol starts going up. Your HDL cholesterol starts going down. Your glucose starts going up again about three to six months before your final period. So again, that is a high risk time for the cardiovascular system that we always have to pay attention to. So again, it's a moving target all life long for women. And a lot of it is related to the fluctuating and changing reproductive hormonal milieu that a woman finds herself in. This is great. I don't think I can ever hear that story enough, <laughs> how you tell it. But this is, I hope our listeners are getting a lot out of this because I, I truly do each time we have this discussion. I want to also piggyback off of a couple of things you said as we move through this. We know that African-American women are at greater risk for hypertensive disorders or pregnancies and have some of the highest mortality associated with pregnancy. So we don't want to not mention or talk about increased risk for women uh, with hypertension and then those that go on again to exercise their reproductive oxygen to have kids. And so it is important for us to begin to elevate this conversation to make sure, and this is my tagline, Carol. So I've often commented that we're not ignoring women that are pregnant, but all African-American are at risk. And what I would love to see us do is to improve the health of all African-American women. So those that go on 
to become pregnant have better outcomes. Because when we do that, we're lifting all of the women and making sure that all of us are advocating for greater health and particular cardiovascular health. So that again, if you do decide to become pregnant, that your outcomes are improved and better outcomes than if we were not having this discussion at all. So I don't know if you have additional comments you want to make about that. I know this is something that is very important now for us to begin to talk about. It really, really is. So what we've heard a lot in the news lately is all this discussion around Black maternal health and morbidity, meaning an African-American mother who's pregnant and delivers a child is at much greater risk of an adverse pregnancy outcome like gestational diabetes, hypertension, preeclampsia, preterm delivery, much higher risk of an adverse outcome like dying. We've heard some tragic recent stories of young African-American mothers who have died during childbirth. It's so much more common in African-Americans than it is in the overall population. And what this is, is pregnancy magnifies, it's a peak, it is a window into cardiovascular health. So this is cardiovascular vulnerabilities that exist throughout everyone, especially black women, whether they're pregnant or not. But because pregnancy is such a stress test for the heart, it's magnified. It brings it out. These are the same risk factors that are operative in everyone, whether you have a child or not. It's just that Pregnancy highlights it, magnifies it, shines a big bright light on it. And all the adverse outcomes now we're seeing really are making their way to the news. And that's important when you have women who are African-American who have all the resources in the world, like Serena Williams, and she's very public about her problems with her first pregnancy. We understand now that money, fame, and everything else will not protect you. African-American women are at higher risk, and if we don't pay attention, we will continue to have these devastating outcomes. But again, it's not just women who are pregnant. These are risks that are operative in everyone. It's just being magnified in the pregnant woman, but everyone can be at risk. So I'm going to pivot just a teeny bit to kind of talking about what we think um, might be ways that African-American women can advocate more for their health, uh, in particular, their cardiovascular health. Your opening comments, you talked about women who really want to be healthy and want to improve their health. And so I'm wondering in terms of talking with your healthcare provider or your clinician, um, what are ways that you think women can elevate their voices to be heard? I, I personally, and I know you have, I've heard stories of women that say they felt invisible in terms of their health care. They felt helpless, like they didn't really have the authority to take control of their own health. And so there are a couple of levels for us to talk about this on. First, in terms of what you're seeing in your patients and how you're coaching them to really become better advocates and to try to get some of that control back, that internal control around how they make decisions around their health care. And me on the public health side of that is understanding what we can do to elevate some of this conversation in a public health forum 
across all of our communities of women to be better advocates for our health, for improvement of health and health outcomes in the systems. Yes, this is so important, Letitia. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's also not fair to ask the people who are concerned about illness or injury or whatever to be the ones driving the discussion about the healthcare, but it's unfortunately necessary. One of the most important things I think anyone can do is be an advocate for their own health and know the data. So if you're an African-American woman who goes to, to their doctor and they come back and say, oh, everything looks great. And you, you say, you know, that blood pressure of 130 seems a little high. Should it be lower? Should we be treating that? Should we be looking at that? You know, ask questions. Again, it's not really fair. It's not that you have to make that a priority, but it is something that will make a difference. If someone says, should we look at X, Y, and Z? That will make someone think twice, hopefully, about looking at X, Y, and Z to make sure you have a good outcome. It's also really important to know our histories. Our histories, our mother's histories, our family histories. So for instance, if your mother had preeclampsia, there's evidence that there's a genetic component. So you may be at higher risk. So make sure they know that. Yeah, I was born premature. So premature birth is something to me that's a big red flag. So the placenta, it's that big bag of endothelial cells and blood vessels that's meant only to nourish the baby. If you have preterm labor, it means for some reason that placenta could not nourish the baby long enough. And the endothelial cells and the blood vessels in the placenta are sort of a biomarker for the endothelial cells and the blood vessels throughout the mother's body. So if there's some deficiencies in the placenta, there may be some deficiencies in the mother's vessels. So make sure if you've had a preterm delivery, or if you know your family had that, make sure your healthcare provider knows that. That might make them think a little harder, a little deeper about your risk factors. But again, as in so many things in life, we have to take charge of our own destiny. Again, it's not always fair. It's not always right but it's how we can ensure the best outcomes. And the community, the Association of Black Cardiologists now has a very active Black maternal health community that talks about these things now. We are our best educators and advocates. We help each other. And knowing that we're at risk and knowing what we're at risk from and how to perhaps lower that risk is really important. And again, we have to be the ones who advocate the most for our own health. And I think just piggybacking on that, you know, your comments are spot on. We should not force the individual to be the sole owner of this particular health issue. It should be in partnership. And one of the things that I want to pose to you, too, is that you and I, you know, we're friends. We talk about these issues, very passionate about these. But we've got to foster collaboration and communication amongst our entire team of folks. So when I'm in public health, I'm thinking about the Carol Watson's, the cardiologist, right? I'm also thinking about the other scientists and poly, policy makers and other um, community stake uh, collaborators and others that should be at the table that should be working with us on this issue. So we're not putting so much strain on either the individual or one system. We should all be fostering communication across all of these systems for improved health outcomes. 
again, hearkening back on my earlier statements, none of us own any one lever to make all of the improvements that you and I have kind of mentioned briefly here today. But collectively, if we are all fostering this collaboration and communication, we can come together and then harness all of that power, so to speak. And then we begin to leverage and to be able to improve health outcomes across a group of individuals and communities. You are so correct, Letitia. And I love that you mentioned that. We all have to be at the table from the patient, from their family, their community, the healthcare provider, the public health community, the policymakers, the legislators. We all have to come together. And perhaps for so many of the things that actually impact our health, the policymakers may have the biggest impact. Because if I don't have a healthy place to exercise, or access to healthy foods, I'm never going to have good health. And some of these things are literally out of my own control and really have to go to some higher level. Like a lot of the things you do, Letitia, in public health are so important. Getting out the knowledge and the information and making sure that we can all live healthier lives is going to make each individual's health better. So we're kind of coming to the close, and I hate that because I could talk about this, I'm sure, like you could all day. We got a couple more questions, but I really hope that uh, the information we're sharing here today will be helpful to the listeners that will have the opportunity to hear this podcast. So just a couple more things. The first thing is when we think about all of this technology that's out, and it's a little scary how much technology we have, right? I'm wondering if there's any piece of technology that you think... African-American women can look to or anything that we should be advising them right now that would help to improve their cardiovascular health outcomes? I know that's kind of a big question, but I don't know, again, as if it's something in your day-to-day that you would say, if I could get African-American women, and I'm going to say to self-measure and monitor your blood pressure if you are diagnosed with hypertension, right? That's the one thing that we know that helps. And it takes a little bit of technology for that. It does take a blood pressure monitor. You might have other means to be able to measure that if you use a digital BP monitor or something of that nature. But I don't know if there's any technology or either low tech. Everybody doesn't have access to technology either. So there are other things that we can do You know, if you're going to take your blood pressure and you have to write it on a piece of paper and share that with your nurse practitioner, your nurse or your physician, do those things. But I don't know if there's something else you want to share with us today also around this technology or anything that you think we could share with the group of African-American women that could help improve their cardiovascular health outcomes. And I use, my example was clearly around hypertension. So I don't want to limit you to that, but that was just an example I gave for the, for this. Yeah. So there are certainly things that we know we should be recommending to our patients. For instance, if you have diabetes, we recommend you monitor your own glucose. If you have hypertension, we recommend you monitor your own blood pressure. And so many of us, most of us will develop hypertension in our lifetime. So getting a validated blood pressure monitor, and there are websites where you can find out, and measuring your blood pressure from now and again, because it's important for us to know we can bring that information to our healthcare provider and they can help act on it. It's much more important to know 
what your blood pressure is every day and every night when you're out of my office than just that one time when you come in my office. So I really love it when people bring me their monitors and their results, and I really have a lot of data from which I can make decisions. But what I wanna impress upon people is that good health doesn't require anything high tech. And in our Women's Cardiovascular Center, our mantra is move frequently, eat thoughtfully, connect deeply. And those really are three very low-tech, important things we can do to protect our health. So move frequently. You don't have to be a marathon runner or a mountain biker. You just have to move a lot and all the time. So walk whenever you can, take the stairs whenever you can, park a little further from the grocery store and walk in. Just every little step helps. So move frequently. Eat thoughtfully. What I jokingly tell my patients, you know, if you're going to eat something you know is not healthy, make sure it makes you really, really happy and just eat a little bit. We all know what we should be eating and what we shouldn't. If we have any questions or concerns, we can ask our healthcare provider, but most of us know what's good to eat and what's not. So think about the things you eat and make sure if you're going to eat something that's not healthy, make sure it's going to make you really happy and just eat a little bit. And then we really believe in connection. There's so much data about improved health outcomes when people are connecting to communities, to people, to friends, to pets. It's really important. So move frequently, eat thoughtfully, connect deeply. I love that. All right. So we're going to close with uh, one last statement and I'm going to give you the opportunity to share anything else you'd like to share and then I'll close us out. But is there anything you want to share or how we can around how we can celebrate and amplify the voices of African-American women, especially women who are living successfully with cardiovascular disease or women who have overcome cardiovascular disease or women who are, as we like to say, still in the struggle and trying to get there? Yeah, the first thing I say to all of my patients, especially those living with heart disease, at risk for heart disease or worried about heart disease, is I am proud of them because they are surviving and they're doing the best they can. And there are things we can do to help each other and work together. And we should all do that. But I really have a problem with blaming people for their poor health. That's not a blame. That is something that we work to help them with. And we're proud of them for thriving despite all the obstacles. So my big point is you're doing a great job. Let's all work together to try to do a little bit better and let's help each other. So Carol, that was wonderful. So I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And again, like I said, I hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. I could talk about this subject as, as well as you forever uh, about how to improve the lives of women in particular African-American women. So I want to close with a couple of things. We hope you, again, were able to glean some information out of this. We want you to continue to celebrate life, live every day to the fullest, live, as Carol said, as healthy as you can, do the things that make you happy. We want all women to live spectacular lives, at least as spectacular as they can be. But one of the things that I do want to share with you is that cardiovascular disease, we know is a load. There's a lot to managing this particular disease and to really trying to do the things that will help you to improve your health. 
But the great Lena Horne said, it's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. And if you get nothing out of this today, we want this to be a way for you to understand how to carry that load better, how to feel better, but to know that you can live a very improved and successful life with cardiovascular disease. So for those women that have cardiovascular disease, continue to do all of the things that Dr. Watson has encouraged you to do here. We want you again to be successful in this journey. And remember, it's not the load that breaks you down. It's absolutely the way that you carry it. Amen. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us today. And we would love to see you back at a future podcast. Have a great afternoon. Everyone have a fantastic day. Thank you so much again to Dr. Letitia Presley Cantrell from the CDC and Dr. Carol Watson from UCLA for imparting their wisdom and invigorating us to continue the work to alleviate health disparities among African-American women. With gratitude to the CDC, we'd like to say thank you for funding this effort. This podcast episode is brought to you by the National Association for Chronic Disease Directors, or NACDD. With more than 7,000 members, we aim to strengthen state-based leadership and expertise for chronic disease prevention and control. NACDD is the only membership association of its kind to serve and represent every chronic disease division in all states and U.S. territories. For more information, please visit chronicdisease.org.